Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by someone with whom I've shared a number of TV appearances quite recently, but someone whose work has had a huge impact on on my own work and and countless others. I'm joined today by Rami Khoury. Rami is journalist in residence and adjunct professor of journalism at the American University in Beirut, where he's also coordinator AUB and NYC Briefings Initiative. He is a senior public policy fellow at the American University of Beirut, a syndicated columnist at the Agence Global Syndicate USA, and a non-resident senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. Rami, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting, Rami. I'm really looking forward to to our chats. Obviously, you've published on on pretty much every single aspect of, of Middle Eastern politics, so... So I imagine this is going to be a very wide-ranging discussion, but I'm, I'm confident that it's going to be really interesting. Um, Thank you. Rami, as, as a Palestinian with American and Jordanian nationalities, I guess the answer to this, this first question is going to be quite obvious. But can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in, in the subject matter that you're working on, please? Well, as a Palestinian who was born in 1948 in New York City when my father was working for the UN there, and growing up as a Palestinian, traveling all over the world with my father working for the UN, I realized uh, sometime in adolescence that I didn't actually belong to any of these countries where I was living and working and studying. Uh, And then, as all Palestinians do and, and all refugees do, in exile, they realize what their nationality is, and that sort of shapes their lives. And I, I had a very happy uh, childhood and went to university and uh, high school in Switzerland when my father was there, and then university in the United States. And, and then I got into journalism in uh, college and political science. And immediately when I graduated in 1970, I went back to Lebanon to work. My first job was at the Daily Star newspaper in Beirut. And I've ever since then, I've followed contemporary Middle East affairs, lived through them and chronicled them and written about them and met a lot of the people who make the news and followed all the big trends. And I've worked on many different areas. I did some work for UNICEF once. I wrote books on archaeology. I worked for Financial Times covering finance and development and and uh, general political reporting and uh, so I've uh, I've worked in different areas and that's helped me understand the changes in the contemporary Middle East contemporary meaning the last 40 years or so sure because all the, all these dimensions of life you know whether it's maternal and child health or environment or historical memory and identity or uh, economic well-being, all of these things are what drive people's lives and attitudes and therefore drive the history of the region. So I found that I tend to uh, cover a lot of different issues, but always from a multidisciplinary angle. Right. Going back to that, that point about your identity, was there a particular a particular time that struck you when you were when you were struggling to position yourself? Is there, is there one event or a series of events that you can pinpoint? I wouldn't say struggling, but I remember in high school in Switzerland when I went to the International School of Geneva, which is a great school, and most of the, we had 52 nationalities, but the dominant nationality was American. 
and um, then there was people from every other nationality you could think of. But the, 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 um, the dominance of the American culture when you're 16 and 18 years old is quite powerful. And so, you know, I would wear white socks and wear loafers and like, uh, and like American students did. And, uh, and my, most of my best friends were Americans as well as Canadian and Pakistani and other nationalities. Uh, but so I, I, at that stage, I was uh, very much still, you know, maturing as a young man. And, and my cultural identity was clearly very American or Western. I played baseball. Um, you know, I was a baseball little league umpire later in life. Yeah. Um, but it, but it was really right after that in college that I realized that actually I'm a Palestinian, though I'm an American and a Jordanian citizen with great respect and, and affection for both of those citizenships. And I pay my taxes and I obey the law, but my identity is very much as a Palestinian. And that happened when I realized, you know, especially the 1967 war, um, when I was in the U.S. and there was thousands of, of Jewish students out on the uh, university, you know, pledging money to Israel, I said, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Uh, and then ever since then, I've been very active as a journalist and, and occasionally in other ways, uh, you know, advocating for Palestinian rights and for a just solution between Israelis and Palestinians so both could live in peace. Sure, yeah, and and I think that, that that really comes through across your your huge corpus of of work that that sense of justness and and sort of resolving things in in an appropriate and responsible way. But Rami, of, of all the possible careers, you you picked journalism. Why was that? Well, it's it's funny how that happened. I went to college to study biochemistry, right? Because I yeah, I had this amazing British professor of biology in high school. And I absolutely fell in love with biology and, and especially the, you know, the photosynthesis and the DNA and the, and the sort of the simple biochemistry part, because he was such a great teacher um, and uh, Reggie. And I went to see him a few years ago uh, to thank him again, because he's still alive and living in Geneva. But he inspired me so much, not just to love bio, biology, but to love learning. And to, he taught me how to learn by observing things. He'd take us for a walk around the football field, looking at insects and plants and trees and moss. And so he, he'd very much taught me how to learn by observing and listening. And though I went to college thinking, oh, I gotta do biochemistry. Well, my first chemistry course, I was completely lost. I had no idea what was going on. It was way too hard for me. Right. And I went, to, I went to my advisor as a freshman and I was lucky my advisor gave me the best advice I ever had. She said, uh, what do you do in your spare time? What do you do that brings you joy? And I thought, I said, well, I like to write. I'm writing all the time. I write songs. I write poetry. I write all kinds of stuff for the school paper. And she said, well, you should go into writing because that's what you like to do and it comes easy to you. And I looked around and I said, well, either I could do creative writing in the English department and struggle for my meals all my life, or <laughs> I could go to journalism because there happened to be a great journalism school where I was at Syracuse University. So I went to journalism almost by accident, even though my father was a journalist all right. his life. Oh, amazing. I, I love yeah. that. that. That's fantastic. Rami, do you remember the first story that you filed then? Well, I wrote for the college uh, newspaper uh, and did all kinds of stories then. But the first story I did professionally, uh, when I le when I uh, well, I did some freelance writing uh, in college, but it was all about college stuff. But when I my first job as a reporter was at the Daily Star in like 1970 or 71, 
And, 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 you know, here I was, a young graduate from a good journalism school, ready to take on the world. And my editor, a wonderful fellow, Jihad Khazan, a very prominent Arab journalist now, with, he was with Hayat and then he retired. He, he gave me my first assignment, which is to write about the cockroaches in Beirut and <laughs> right. what's the situation with the cockroaches. And I said, uh, okay, yeah, you know, I was ready to write about Arab-Israeli peace or, you know, third world decolonization. And he tells me to write about cockroaches. So I went out and spent a week doing incredible research on cockroaches and from every angle. And I wrote what I thought was a really great story. And to this day, I, I still have a lot of knowledge of cockroaches. But that was the first actual story I wrote as a full-time uh, hired uh, journalist. Right. And can you give us a cockroach fact then, as we're talking on the subject? Yes, cockroaches are much more afraid of you than you're afraid of them. If you, <laughs> you know, people are terrified of cockroaches because they look so creepy. Yeah. But if you notice, next time you run into a cockroach, you just stop for a minute and you'll notice they will run away from you. They won't run at you to attack you, they'll run away from you because they're terrified of, uh, <laughs> of uh, people. And also they like to go and warm places like under stoves or fridge refrigerators where there's crumbs of food and a bit of moisture. So if you clean those areas, you probably won't have cockroaches. <laughs> right. Good knowledge. Thank you for the tips. So right. af after the cockroach story, then you, you sort of set out making your career at the Daily Star. And, and what sort of niche did you carve for yourself? What type of story were you routinely tasked with? Well, I just did general reporting. I wrote about Everything, really, politics, culture. I interviewed lots of interesting people. I remember once I interviewed William Saroyan, the writer. Um, I interviewed uh, Bradley, the former mayor of, of Los Angeles. And okay, I had uh, Miss World, Georgina Rizzi. I interviewed people and I did general reporting. I covered conferences. I just learned a lot. I was lucky to have several really fine editors uh, who uh, gave me a lot of uh, tips as a young writer. And, um, and I didn't specialize in, in any one area. And then I started writing columns. Uh, then they asked me to start writing columns, which I did, uh, because I had been writing columns in college. And so my column career writing started really very early, too. It's about 50 years now that I've been writing uh, columns. But then I, I only started to specialize when I left Beirut because of the war in 75, went to Jordan, became editor of the Jordan Times, which was just starting. I was the first editor. And then I immediately started um, freelancing, being a stringer for the Financial Times. So I immediately started focusing a little bit more on political stuff. And of course, as editor, I wasn't writing a lot. I'd write a column once a week, but, uh, but I would freelance for the Financial Times. And I started focusing on business, banking, development, economic issues. Uh, so that was the beginning of my several uh, uh, eras of specialization. So I did a lot of uh, economic writing then. And then, as it happened in my career, every about five or six years, I would focus on a new area. So a few years after that, I started doing some freelance work with UNICEF, writing reports for them around the region. And they would uh, send me to countries to do reports on maternal and child health, which I knew nothing about. But uh, I learned a lot, and it taught me incredibly important things about how local communities and remote areas uh, look on themselves and look on their leaders and look on their country, etc. And maternal and child health issues um, were, were, was the second kind of th theme that I focused on. That also got me into things like, you know, clean water, sanitation, um, 
uh, and then a few years later, I started writing about archaeology. Because yeah. Jordan was full of archaeology, amazing stuff. So for 20 years, I wrote about archaeology. And that was incredibly useful because it gave me a lot of insights into current conflicts in the region by understanding some of the ancient ones. And, and the archaeology got me into biblical stuff and religion. So I started writing about biblical archaeology, and I read the Quran several times, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Several. I'm Christian myself, and I've you know gone to church here and there, but I never had read the holy books, so I read them all. Um, and then, you know, the religious writing was incredibly important because it helped me understand a lot of the current political religious linkages uh, in, among Christians, Jews, and Muslims, um, the religiosity that has been injected into politics. Yeah. And having having that background was incredibly uh, useful. <clears throat> so it, it was interesting how every few years I would specialize in a new area uh, while maintaining the knowledge from the previous one. And that gave me a very well-rounded view of how people and societies worked in this part of the world. And I think that that's certainly something that, that comes out in, in your writing, and I'd like to touch on that in a little bit. But can we just go back briefly to your, your writing on archaeology? And it, it got me thinking when I was, when I was researching for this podcast, your, your book on Petra. And yes. it, it struck me that, that this must have been around the time when the Jordanians were, were opening up the state to tourism and, and really changing how they were dealing with the sort of the indigenous people in Petra. Can you share any, any thoughts and memories from that time, please? Yes, they had been opening to tourism really since the 60s and, and were moving very slowly uh, because the infrastructure wasn't there really. But then by the 80s, 70s and 80s, uh, when I started uh, writing on archaeology, they were getting much more serious about it, uh, and they had their national airlines flying to the U.S. direct and things like that. So um, uh, Petra and Jarash and other sites started to be developed really well, and dealing with the local uh, Bedul Bedouins who lived inside Petra uh, was a big challenge, and I think they handled it pretty well. They they worked out an arrangement with Abdul to build them a new little town village right on the edge of Petra, but because the the Bedou were living inside the city in caves, and, and that wasn't sustainable because they were growing. The population of the village was growing into several hundred, and they needed schools and clinics, and you couldn't build those things inside uh, Petra. So uh, they worked out this arrangement, and they built this new town. I think the World Bank was involved, and the the villagers moved. Some of, they continued to have a monopoly on the tourist trade inside uh, Petra, which was uh, nice for them. And then they've had much better living arrangements with services and facilities and things, uh, things like that. So that was interesting to see, to see how that developed. I developed some friendships with some of the young kids who were then about eight, ten years old, who would take you around on a horse. I'd go and rent a horse and they'd stay with me all day or a donkey. Yeah. And uh, I got to, so there's some Bedouin kids that I got to know. Maybe they were 10, 12 years old and, and I've you know been in touch with them ever since. They're now 40 years old and running their own little shops and things like that. Uh, but it's a very interesting uh, example of uh, uh, how you have to be very careful how you develop tourism because the minute you get large numbers of foreigners who come and spend a few hours at a place, the the local people, uh, unknowingly or, or just naturally, all they want to do is to get as much money out of them as possible. Yeah. And this is common in tourism all over the world. And you, and you have to be careful 
about the ethics of that, and uh, so that's that's something that the Jordanians continue to uh, to grapple with. But I think generally they've done a pretty good job in conserving uh, Petra. They haven't done well in other places, uh, more remote sites, but Petra itself and Jarash, the big sites, are pretty well preserved. Sure. And once again, we see that that interest in in people coming out. Um, Rami, let's let's jump a couple of decades, if I may, um, because time is is rapidly moving. Um, mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the Arab uprisings, if I may, because yes. again, we we see this this really keen sort of people driven movement, and and your reporting of that time and the years that followed really tried to focus on on the stories of individuals and and the the sort of popular dimensions to it. So can you share a little bit about about what was driving your analysis at this time and what you were trying to achieve when you were covering this this seismic series of events? Well, what was driving it really was my uh, appreciation for the issues in the lives of ordinary people that had accumulated over the previous three decades, really since the late 1980s, since the development surge from the 1920s to the 1980s in the Arab world uh, started to slow down and and economies stagnated and then there were stresses and social services declined, governments had to tighten their belts. So from the 1980s on, people, middle class people, really started feeling uh, economic uh, pressures on them. And the governments were no longer able to subsidize everything. And, and most people had no real political power in any Arab country to be able to do anything about it. And, and, and more and more pressures accumulated. So by 2005, 2010, um, people were ready to explode. And they did explode. To be fair to ordinary Arab people, though, they, they were not just sitting there quietly this whole time. From the 1980s until the explosion of 2010-2011, there was constant efforts by ordinary people and organized labor unions, professional groups, women's groups, student groups, labor groups, constant efforts, including some peaceful demonstrations and petitions, to try to push the government to deal with the issues that ordinary people were suffering from, which was lack of jobs, uh, corruption, uh, abuse of power, declining social services and lack of political accountability. Those, those five things have been, have been pretty well documented um, over the years. And, and people f- for 30 years were uh, demonstrating, speaking out, trying to get the governments to do their job without any real success. And finally, they, they exploded. But it's the multi-sectoral, multi-dimensional nature of people's discontent in their homes. You know, they wouldn't get enough water, their schooling quality was declining. They couldn't get enough good jobs for their kids. The the grad students dropped out of school early and just went to work as unskilled labor. Um, the uh, different dimensions of people's lives all together created this helplessness and hopelessness, which uh, finally people said we've got to change the whole system. Uh, so it's that that was the important thing to me to capture the uh, different aspects of people's discontent, which, uh, in a sense, dehumanized them. Uh, And they decided that they didn't want to be dehumanized and live like animals. They wanted to live like human beings with dignity. And they had no choice but to go to the streets, and they did. And and it's still happening. Algeria, Sudan are very dramatic now. But in the last eight years, by the way, there's been nonstop demonstrations 
all across the Middle East, in, in Algeria, and in Morocco, and Jordan, and Tunisia, and in Lebanon, in uh, Kuwait, Oman. So it's not as if there was a sudden eruption sure. and then everything was quiet. People have been pleading with the governments to do their job uh, for 20, 30 years. And do that job, by that you mean what exactly? By do what the governments did before 1980 and are supposed to do, which is to serve their people equitably, provide basic decent services, provide security, provide opportunity, provide voice and identity. And I mean, they don't provide identity, but to allow people to, to you know, manifest their own identity, whether it's national or cultural or, or gender or whatever it is. To, uh, and governments should allow people to live a, a life of dignity and decency and opportunity. And they did that. So that, 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 that's the interesting thing. Arab governments were not incompetent uh, throughout the modern state period starting in 1920. They did quite a good job of national development. And the, the developmental spree from 1920 to 1980 was among the fastest in the world in, in some areas. So the people who are, and they're still doing it today, the people in Basra and southern Iraq who go out and demonstrate every week and in Jordan, they're asking the governments, please, we need electricity every day. We need uh, good quality schools. You used to give us these things. Why are you not giving them to us anymore? So they're asking the government to basically do its job. Yeah. And the governments are not able to do it for many reasons, corruption being one of them, incompetence being another, lack of resources being another. There's many different reasons. And, and just the, the population growth of the Arab world, when I started doing research on these issues uh, back in the, uh, in the 80s, the Arab world's population was something like 107 million. Now it's 400 million. Um, so the population growth was growing so much faster than economic growth that even the oil economies couldn't keep up with it. Yeah. And, and there's, so there's many reasons why the governments couldn't do it. It's not that they were just all bad people. They're not. They were mostly decent people, but they just didn't have uh, really the capacity to run governments well. And many of these governments were taken over by military people in Syria and Iraq and Egypt and Yemen and Sudan and Mauritania um, and in other countries that are not uh, republics and monarchies, the security people uh, played a huge role. So security people are, are supposed to do security. They're not trained to do governance. And they showed it, that they don't know how to do governance and, and the governance. And that's why we ended up with these basket cases countries and these incredible eruptions of popular discontent. Yeah. And I, I want to touch on, on the future in a, in a minute. But if I may, can I ask, why do you think the events of, of late 2010 and 2011 took so many people by surprise when, when as you correctly say, there were signs of it in, in the decade previously or the decades previously? Yes, there were many signs. In fact, I wrote an article about this recently, the early warning signs that we missed. I, I, I wrote about 10 different phenomena since the 1970s that showed that there was growing mass discontent uh, across the whole region among ordinary people because of poverty, because of lack of jobs, because of uh, unequal treatment, many different reasons. Uh, the, 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 the signs were missed because the Arab governments, the private sector to a large extent, and the foreign governments that dealt with Arab governments didn't care about what ordinary people f felt. They just didn't care about ordinary Arab men and women because they didn't think they mattered. 
All they cared was the security relationship with the government and selling us cars and weapons and um, and television sets. And uh, so we, you know, we were basically markets and targets. They were markets for bombs and attacks and sanctions, or we were market, uh, or we were, oh, we're sorry, we were targets uh, for bombs and attacks and sanctions, or we were markets for trade. They wanted to sell us stuff. They didn't look at us as countries where human beings had basic uh, universal rights and needed to be listened to. Uh, and this is a hangover from the colonial period. There, you know, we still, in many ways, still live in the, a, a, a process of colonialism uh, in many ways. Some, some Arab governments, for instance, can't go and buy any weapons they want. They've got to get the okay from the U.S. or Israel or, or England or somebody. Yeah. Uh, so there's still a kind of hangover uh, of Arab sovereign states that are not fully sovereign, um, partly because they're places like Syria and Yemen and Libya now, of course, that any country in the world can come in with its army and uh, kill anybody it wants and wage warfare, and, and the Arab governments there can't do anything about it. So all of these things, you know, come come together, the, the dilution of the integrity of the state, the uh, weakness of the dignity of the individual citizen, the uh, sustainability of the development pattern uh, of the previous 50 years, uh, and the continued sense by ordinary men and women and children uh, that they have a better future ahead of them, and therefore they should work hard and study because they're going to get more opportunities. Uh, all of these things uh, were, were, you know, were, were not really looked at by governments sufficiently or by uh, foreign powers. I should add, to be fair, also that there, this was a region that was continuously militarily penetrated or invaded by foreign armies since Napoleon 220 years ago. We've had almost nonstop foreign militarism, and it's gotten much worse in the last 10 years uh, in the region now. And the second thing is we've had 100 years of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the Arab-Israeli conflict has been one of the biggest detrimental forces in the uh, uh, stagnation and de-development and militarization um, of the region. And, and, and essentially what's happened in the last 40 years is we've had the pauperization of the Arab citizenry because around 66% of Arabs now are poor and vulnerable according to, to uh, credible UN and other data. 66%, two out of three Arabs are poor uh, and vulnerable. So we've had the pauperization of the citizenry along with the militarization of the state. And most Arab uh, governments and states are run like you know military schools and there's military men all over the place and you've got to get the military to approve anything you want to do um, and, and this trend has not served us uh, very well. And that's one of the reasons why people, again, revolted. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, a devastating tale. That, that statistic of 66% is, is incredibly disconcerting. And, of course, oh. you, you mentioned military men. And I think that in itself tells you a great deal as well, bringing the, the gender dimensions out, which is a huge issue across, across the Middle East and across the, the world more broadly, I guess. But Rami, it also strikes me that, that what we're seeing here is is the failure of politics more broadly. Well, internal politics never existed. This is one of the fear, one of the failures of the modern Arab world. You know, in the 30s, you had more lively domestic uh, political contestation and debate uh, than you did in recent years. Um, once the military security people took power, starting in around 1970. 
with Assad and Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi. And around 1970, the military people took power. And uh, ever since then, the security people have, have dominated governance. Uh, so there's never been really a public sphere that has developed. You, you could only say in public what essentially the government allowed you to say. And this is actually getting worse now, by the way. If you look at places like uh, Saudi Arabia or uh, Egypt or other Arab countries, it's getting much, much worse than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so there was never really any genuine politics. Uh, there was uh, superficial political contestation. You had parliaments, but the parliaments never really had full authority. The elections were not always free and fair. The systems were gerrymandered to maintain a pro-government um, majority. And if you had a reasonable election, like in Kuwait, and the parliament got too feisty, the emir would just close the parliament and have another election. And the constitution let them do that. So uh, we never had politics in the Arab world. This is what we've seen in the last uh, decade is actually the birth of modern Arab politics. And we're seeing it today in Sudan. Literally, as we speak in Sudan now, you're getting this incredible domestic uh, process of consultation with the military and the civilians to create a constitutional system dominated by civilians that allows different voices to be heard and gives everybody equal rights. The Tunisians were the first to do it, and I think we're going to see more of this happening in the years to come. That, that's a really interesting point about the emergence of politics. Uh, that absolutely fascinating. Uh, Rami, we've we've taken up so much time, but if I may, I'd like to end with one final question and hopefully a slightly more positive one, if I may. And that is, uh, what what is the story that you've most enjoyed covering across your time writing on the on the region? I think it's the story about ordinary people in their local communities, whether I was writing about archaeology or economic development or something else, when you see ordinary people in their local communities, often in difficult conditions, often they feel mistreated, they feel that uh, their human dignity is not really respected, but they just get on with life and they they have this indomitable force uh, to just take care of their family, uh, go to school, uh, go to the mosque, uh, a few of them go to church. Uh, there used to be a few Jews who used to go to the temple, but there's not many Arab Jews left. And they just get on with life. And this uh, spirit of uh, survival, while maintaining the incredible humanity and warmth uh, of uh, Arab culture. Yeah. Uh, and you go into the poorest areas of Cairo or Beirut or Amman or Casablanca, anywhere you go, rural areas, uh, urban, uh, even urban slums, and you walk around and you sit with somebody and you have a chat and they bring out the tea and then they invite you for dinner. And it's there's this humanity that asserts itself despite all of the dehumanizing forces at play in many of these countries. Uh, that to me is the is the is the great story of uh, of the modern Arab world. It's the triumph of humanity over dehumanization, uh, and it's it's going to take some time for the uh, for the humanized the rehumanization. I mean, it's not rehumanization because we felt dehumanized, but we always maintained our humanity. But to to assert our humanity and to kill the ghosts of dehumanization that that uh, uh, governments and foreign armies 
have imposed on us. Uh, that really is the greatest story of the of the contemporary Arab world. And and most of the international media doesn't really see it, doesn't yeah. cover it, doesn't appreciate it. They're too busy writing about conflicts. Or I mean, if you look at the stuff in the Gulf now, uh, it's incredible how superficial and, and inadequate the reporting. Uh, I think has been looking at a drone here and a ship there. Uh, well, what about the 80 million uh, uh, Iranians at home with their sanctions? What about the Emiratis and Saudis in their countries with the incredible things that their governments are doing that may be creating more pressure on them as citizens of those countries, especially engaged in the war uh, in Yemen? So the human story of ordinary Arab people and Iranians and Turks and Israelis doesn't come out uh, yeah. very much. Uh, and that's really one of the weaknesses of the of the media. And it's when, when I teach journalism, I try to teach uh, the students <clears throat> to, to get out there and, and just listen to people. That's really the most important thing. Um, you just listen to what people are saying. And it's one of the things that I've learned by doing research on the papers of the late, great Anthony Shadid, the, the foreign correspondent who died a few years ago, and uh, we've got his papers at AUB Library. And his greatest strength was listening to people for hours and hours. He'd sit there and talk to people, and that's what allowed him to write these great stories. And he, he was the most widely uh, awarded uh, correspondent in, in modern American history, I think. Um, so listening to people, understanding their concerns, their sentiments, and conveying them accurately to the world is what journalists should do, rather than uh, siding with government uh, ideologues uh, or lobby groups or other things that are going on today. And I think that anyone who's spent time out in the region knows exactly what you're talking about with the, the warmth and the hospitality from from general people that you meet from, from the streets of the, the, the Gulf cities all the way across the region. And I think, mm -hmm. Rami, as well, it's, it's something that, that you must be commended for. And if I may, I will just say it's something that mm -hmm. really comes out of your work, this, this emphasis on, on people, the fact that the stories are about people. It's not just broad geopolitical issues. One of the things I love about reading your work is that you focus on people and the people being affected, and that's so important. Thank you. Well, I think it is important, and I try to play my little role as a, as a columnist and an occasional writer of longer stories um, and to, with my access to the media to talk about these issues because in the end, it's what ordinary people feel that is going to drive the history of this region. Uh, and, and we see this uh, year after year after year. And if, and if people are not sure of that, let them go back and look what happened in Iran in 1953 and look at how Iranians are feeling today and how ordinary people react to what's going on in their lives. And that's why it's so important for journalism to, to touch on this. Yeah. Rami, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fantastic listening to you and talking with you about your work. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. I've been uh, pleased and honored to be with you, and I uh, hope this is useful to whoever listens. I'm sure it will be. So thank you so much, Rami, and thank you for everyone who's listening. Until next time.